The following sermon audio is from Love City Church, Cincinnati. More audio and information about Love City Church can be found at www.mylovecitychurch.org. Please turn with me to 1 Peter, and uh, we are busting into chapter 5 this week. Uh, As we do that, what we're doing, we're continuing in our series called Refined, and that's just been a verse-by-verse study through the book of 1 Peter. Uh, If you've been with us, you know this. If you haven't, you're about to find out. The majority of this letter so far has encouraged and challenged us to accept the reality that trials and difficulty are a part of our shared experience in a world that is broken by sin. Thankfully, though, in true gospel fashion, it has not left us with only the bad news, but we've been constantly pointed back to Jesus as our reason for hope and as our example for how to navigate through the difficulties of life. So Peter keeps saying, life's going to be difficult, there's going to be these trials, but look to Christ. And and he's doing that all different kinds of ways. Chapter 5 takes somewhat of a turn, a little bit away from this overall theme, but the potential for these verses uh, to refine us and help us grow as faithful disciples is just as powerful as the previous four chapters. So I'm excited. I hope you are too. Uh, we're going to see in this chapter Peter appeal both to church leaders and to the church broadly. Uh, we can learn a lot from these instructions today, no matter where or how we serve the body of Christ. And so uh, I'm, I'm hoping that some of you may say, I'm not a church leader, I, I'm not a, a pastor or a deacon, or, and I don't know that I ever will be, so maybe none of this applies to me. I would, just, I would lovingly challenge you that it does, if for no other reason than um, even if you're never called to serve in one of those functions, you should at least know what it looks like when somebody is doing that faithfully. Because part of the job of the body of Christ is to hold those leaders accountable in love. Okay, um, So as is the case almost every time the Bible's really preached, uh, you'll have a chance tonight to either be encouraged or offended or a little bit of both. And so I'm looking forward to all of it. Uh, if you are thirsty for truth, though, and you're humble enough to hear it, I have no doubt that you're going to be helped and blessed today as we work through these verses. The Word of God is good for us, um, and I'm thankful for it. So I'm going to read 1 Peter uh, chapter 5, just five verses, 1 through 5, okay? Therefore, I exhort the elders among you as your fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ and a partaker also of the glory that is to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but voluntarily, according to the will of God. And not for sordid gain, but with eagerness, nor yet as lording it over those allotted to your charge, but proving to be examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. You younger men, likewise, be subject to your elders, and all of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another, for God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. That's a good life verse if you haven't picked one yet. God is opposed to the proud, gives grace to the humble. Amen. Uh, I'm thankful for God's word. So who's offended already? Anybody? All right, good. It's a good start. Um, so here's what I want to do. Before, what we're going to get to in here is, is like a look at what leaders among God's people are called to and what that's supposed to look like. Before we do that, I want to take a moment to observe what this passage reveals about a biblical model for church governance. Now, some of you heard me say that, and you're tempted to like your eyes to glaze over like a Krispy Kreme, and I'm just asking you, don't let it happen, okay? Because you're a part of the church. If you've been bought with the blood of Christ, you are a part of his church. Now, we're going to talk to some degree tonight about how you think about and what, what is the right way to think about to what degree we're connected to a local church, but at the end of the day, you are a part of the church of God, and so uh, it should matter to you how it is that the church is structured, Um, I believe there's faithful and unfaithful ways for that to be done. Uh, It doesn't all look the same, but I'm asking you to hang in here and care about uh, the fact that these verses, this and another set, here's here's why I couldn't hit this without talking about it. These verses probably most clearly lay out why it is Love City structured the way it is. And so many of you probably get that. Some of you may have no idea what I'm talking about, and so and some might be in the middle. So I want to I fill in the gaps for everyone. Those of you that already kind of know about it, I want you to be reaffirmed in the fact that we've taken a biblical approach at that. Those of you in the middle, hopefully you'll be more solid on what it stands on. 
And those of you who have no idea, you're welcome. I'm going to, you know, bust into something new that maybe you've not thought about before. But it's really important uh, for followers of Jesus to care about. So, uh, to ask, I said church governance, which is what I was afraid made you, made you glaze over. But more plainly, like, how should the church be structured? That's the question. We, we see some of that here. And this is something that the Bible, I want to be honest about, is more ambiguous than we would often like. I, I for one, wish... Like post-resurrection, when Jesus is broiling fish on the, on the shore, you know, he's given Peter his encouragement and whatnot. I wish he would have just got the 11 disciples together and said, hey, boys, listen up, get a notepad out. This is how I want the church structured. And just like laid it out for us. That would have been so much easier and it would have saved a lot of arguing. But he, he didn't do that. And to some degree, I understand why. Many believe, and I agree, that there's not a rigid structure imposed because churches have to navigate the specifics of the time and place uh, that they're called to live. And so not every church can look exactly the same, right? We have a set of challenges and issues we need to address here in 2017 in Cincinnati that um, a small tribe that has caught uh, the, the truth about Jesus from a missionary in Papua New Guinea, like their set of challenges and what they've got to work with is going to be different, right? You understand that? So I think the Bible gives some flexibility on the way the church is structured. And I think that's intentional because God's really smart and knows what he's doing. However, there does seem to be a normative biblical pattern that can be followed uh, most of the time. And so we don't argue at all. We're not going to argue with other churches and denominations about how they do church governance. Not a conversation we're going to have. But we here at Love City want to do our best to structure things in accordance to what we see in God's word as opposed to preference or practicalities being the main driver. Because sometimes when people are trying to figure out how to, how to run something or build something or structure something, I mean, it's a natural human thing to say, okay, well, what do we think would work? Let's look at an example of something that works, right? That's the practicality model. That's like, let's look at all the logistical challenges. How can we solve this? And you do some of that, but I want to I start with the scriptures. What have the scriptures revealed about God's heart as it you know, pertains to the way the church is structured, okay? So I realize I already cheerleaded you a little bit in the beginning, but I'm going to ask you again, like, does this matter to you? And I'm going to challenge you that whether you're a part of Love City or some other church body, maybe you're visiting here tonight, uh, I hope you care about how things are structured, how decisions are made, and how the church is led. It's pertinent to your life if you're actually engaged the way the Bible describes we should be in the family and the life of the church. Um, you're, you have some skin in the game if you're really doing this thing with Jesus, and so I want us to be able to understand why we go at it the way we go at it. And the big overarching answer is we think this is the clearest way the Bible points to. So uh, the first thing I want to point out to you is the word elders, plural in verse one. It says, therefore, I exhort the elders among you. Um, this is one of the many places where we see the idea that the New Testament assumes there would be multiple elders in each church. Okay. So some of you are like, yeah, cool. Got that. But here's something really important. Here at Love City, we believe that the words the Bible uses for elder, pastor, and bishop are all describing the same office of leadership in the church. Now, some of you are probably cool with, yeah, I see elders, all right. Now, some of you might come from a tradition or have been a part of something or just, just the way language is used, you might be going, hold on, elder, pastor, bishop is all the same. Well, just track with me a second. The word pastor actually is only used once in Ephesians 4, and it's listed among the teaching gifts that God gave to the church. So you're supposed to think of me as a gift. So every time you see me, just think of me with a big bow on my head, okay? You're welcome. <laughs> Thanks, God, right? <laughs> uh, but it's listed among the teaching gifts given to the church for the equipping of the saints for the work of the ministry, okay? So that's, that's, that's the one place that word is used. The word pastor is also very close to the word for shepherd in the Greek. They're almost exactly the same. And what it's basically describing is, is the gift to feed the flock of God by teaching them the word of God. That's what a pastor does, okay? Now, there's several places where these terms, the one for pastor, elder, and bishop, are used interchangeably and to describe the same leader or leaders. One of those places is where we're at today, which is why I'm taking the risk of talking about something that I, I know some of you might be bored by, but I'm pleading with you not to be. And I don't think we could hit this set of verses and not at least minimally address, this, this is one of the proof texts for why Love City is, is structured the way it is. So let me read this to you. This is an excerpt. This, I did not write this. First, First uh, Peter 5, 1 through 2, brings all three terms together. Peter instructs the elders to be good bishops as they pastor. 
Here's, here's what it says. Therefore, I exhort the elders, the Greek word presbyteros, among you as your fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ and a partaker also of the glory that is to be revealed. And then he says shepherd, which is pomeno, which is very close, almost exactly what the um, poimeno in uh, Ephesians to describe pastor. So it says shepherd the flock of God among you, exercising oversight, episcopeo, not under compulsion, but voluntarily according to the will of God. So all three words, the, the word that is commonly um, translated into English as pastor, elder, and bishop, Peter says, I want you elders to do all those things. You're to shepherd the flock of God, you're to provide oversight, and you're supposed to be in this function as an elder. Acts 20, he does this, Paul does the same thing. So Peter wasn't just confused, Paul agrees. He, uh, is, he's addressing the Ephesians elder, Ephesian elders, uh, and in verse 17 of Acts 20, Paul assembles all the elders, he calls them presbyteros, elders, that's, so that's that, the one word, of the church to give them his farewell message. In verse 28, he says, in regarding these guys he already called elders, multiple elders of the church of Ephesus, he says, so he calls them that first word, then he says, be on guard for yourselves, for all the flock, among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, episcopos, you've got presbyteros, episcopos, to shepherd, poimeno, the church of God. Again, all three terms used to kind of set upon one single office of church leadership uh, what their responsibilities and duties are, how it is they're expected to care for the flock of God. Uh, now, how many Krispy Kremes do I have in the room? I'm almost done. But it really does matter because you, there's, if we're not careful with language and we're not careful about thinking about this right, again, I'm not going to argue with anybody else about what, the way they structure church governance, but we need to pay attention to the way the Bible talks about it because it's kind of the source of like why we have a church at all, right? And so I think God's revealed his heart about it. Um, and, and I think when we, when we divvy those things up and, and in the past when we've tried to make overseer, that overseer word, the bishop kind of over other stuff, it, I think it's, it's messed up to some degree what Jesus had in his heart for the way the church is supposed to look. So that's, it. I'll, that's all I'm going to say about that. So practically what does it mean? I don't... I'm hoping you tracked with that. If you didn't, I really would like to nerd out with you and talk about it. So if you couldn't track with that just from me preaching it, let's sit down and we'll get out a lexicon and we'll talk about it. Like seriously, it matters to me. If you want to care about this and know, I want to explain it to you. So it's important. Practically here at Love City, we use the terms elder and pastor interchangeably. Um, they mean the same thing. We shy away from using bishop because that word has widespread connotations that we think would cause confusion about what we mean. So I guess what I'm saying is technically, according to the Bible, you can call me bishop, and I don't know if I'll stop you. I'm just kidding. Don't call me bishop. We, we use the terms pastor and elder. Bishop would not be wrong. It's just, it's not really in our vocabulary because we think it causes confusion. So there you go. Bishop is a, is a piece on the chessboard. It's a good one. Um, it's also important to note that we believe uh, the form of church governance that resembles most closely what we see in the New Testament is a plurality of elders. That means the vision, direction, operation, and care of the church is led by the elders. We have two pastor elders here at Love City at this time. I'm one of them, and Pastor Jordan is the other. Uh, there are other men who have expressed a desire to serve the church by leading as an elder, and we are in a process with them of assessing the three elements laid out by Peter in these verses, whether or not those are present in their life. Um, and we'll talk more about what those are in just a moment. Uh, they are not mentioned here, but the other office of leadership in the church is deacons, which literally means servant. These are men or women who have a desire to lay their life down to help love and lead the church by serving her, but they are not required to have the gift of teaching. From Acts 6 and the difference in what qualifications are listed in 1 Timothy 3 between elders and deacons, typically what that looks like is deacons are generally tasked with the physical and material care of the church body. Acts 6 is where uh, people were complaining about food distribution, and Peter and some of the other apostles say, listen, part of what we need to focus on in order to lead the church and love the church well is, is the word of God and prayer. We need to get some other uh, anointed, committed men that we can oppose uh, that we can um, draw up, oppose is not the right word, why would they oppose them? That we can, we can kind of pull up into this place of 
they can be trusted to handle this business. That's the bottom line. So, um, there. So typically, deacons are tasked with physical, material care of the church body, and elders with the spiritual care. Uh, in younger and smaller churches, all these duties often fall to the elders until deacons can be established. So that's kind of the way it goes. Um, so one thing this means, practically, and I want you to hear me say this because I think sometimes we're sloppy with our language. The one, one thing this means is that I am not the pastor of the church. Um, I don't even know where Lucy got it, but the other day she, we were talking about something, and, and her answer was, because you're the pastor of the church. And I said, hold on, babe, I'm one of the pastors at the church. And so I want her to think of it that way because I, I think it's really important that the Bible, every time it talks about elders in the church, it's, it's plural. There was, there was more than one. And you can, you can go search that out. Um, so I am not the pastor of the church. I'm one of the pastors. Pastor Jordan has now and other elders in the future will have the same responsibility and authority to care for the church family here as I do. Uh, I do teach the Bible here most often, and I am the founding pastor of the church, but I am also really thankful to have other called, qualified men to share the burden and joy of loving and leading God's people. Um, And I hope you are too. Uh, They can only really bear the spiritual responsibility, though, if they also have the authority to carry it out. And so it's not like, what it doesn't look like is Jesus is the chief shepherd, Pastor Vince is the you know, next in line, and then all the rest of the elders. That's not what it looks like. Jesus is the chief shepherd. You actually all belong to him, and I'm reminded of that in these verses and reminded often uh, that you guys belong to him, and I belong to him. We all belong to him. But uh, for us, it's Jesus is the chief shepherd, and then next in line, both in accountability, responsibility, and authority for leading the church, the elders are on kind of a flat plane. And so um, there's two of us now. If there's a big decision that needs to be made, we pray through it, we work on it, we consult with other leaders in the church that, that you know, whatever the decision being made either affects them or they're, they're an expert in that field, and uh, pray through stuff, and we come to a consensus and make a decision. That's the way it works. As more uh, qualified, called men step into that place of being an elder, they'll be added to that process. And so we look forward to that. We're thankful that God, uh, we believe, has called some that are already here and probably is bringing more. Uh, that want to step up and say, I want to lay my life down to serve the church, because that's really what we're looking for. Not somebody that just says, uh, I think I could be good at being in charge. <laughs> that gets you bumped to the back of the line. <laughs> You're going to fill out the paperwork again, probably, if you say that. So um, the reality is it also takes a variety of different gifts and strengths to lead and care for a church. So when one man tries to do every part, invariably things are done poorly or they get missed altogether. Uh, God is glorified and the church is served well when a plurality of qualified leaders shares the burden and joy of loving and leading God's people. So that's that. That's, that's, that's what I think, th- this is one of the best texts to draw out this idea of what a plurality of elders looks like um, and the fact that elders, pastors are essentially the same thing, that those words all are interchangeably used by Peter but also by Paul and Acts and in other places. So what are the three major elements that should be present in an elder or a pastor? What, the question is, what instructions do we see to elders here from Peter? And again, I'll say to you, this should matter to you because as the church, you should know what a godly leader does and doesn't look like, right? So that if there's abusive, ungodly leaders that are not leading well and that are manipulative or they are in it for sordid gain or they're not doing it out of joy but out of compulsion, that you're not a part of something that's not pleasing to Jesus, right? So we as the church need to know what this looks like. Um, So what are the three elements that should be present in an elder or pastor? First off, he has the desire to serve. Where do I see that? Verse 2, shepherd the flock of God among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but voluntarily, according to the will of God. And so the first thing we see there is that he needs to have a desire to serve, not that his arm is being bent, not that tragically, which I've heard, I've heard this before, and I've seen polls even recently that have, they've asked pastors why they're doing what they're doing, and, and a sadly high percentage have said they just don't know how to do anything else, and that's why they're doing it, uh, and that's, that's really pitiful to me and sad. First uh, Timothy 3.1 says, he who aspires to the office of overseer desires a good work, and so the first qualification, the first element that, that 
Peter's looking for is he encourages these fellow, these fellow elders. I think that's very interesting as well. Think about, in terms of how I described a plurality of elders, was Peter clearly a leader in the early church? I mean, clearly, he was commissioned, and he starts out by saying, I exhort the elders among you, and then he gives them, here's my qualifications, to speak to you church leaders and to encourage you on how to serve well. Here, here's my qualifications. I'm a fellow elder. So this guy's an apostle. As a matter of fact, he was the chief among the apostles. He was essentially the, the hand-picked leader of the 12 leaders that Jesus trained personally, spent as much time as anybody with the master, he, but he calls himself a fellow elder. He doesn't say, as an apostle, I'm talking to you elders, so listen up, does he? He says, as a fellow elder. And so clearly, yes, he was an apostle, and he probably would have been recognized as an elder wherever he, whatever church that followed Jesus that he stepped into, uh, but he, he puts himself in the basket with them, right? As a fellow elder, I want to speak to you, um, because he's not just a distant apostle kind of sending commands down the chain, um, but he understands really what it takes to, to love and lead people in the mold of Christ, okay? Uh, so a fellow elder, and he's a witness of the sufferings of Christ. So here's another reason why you guys should listen to me. I witnessed the sufferings of Christ. I was there. Uh, one can make an argument that he didn't do a great job during that part, but the bottom line is he was there to see it, and uh, he was kind of around for the whole thing. And he was a partaker also of the glory that is to be revealed. That's probably a reference to the fact that he, along with a couple other guys, saw Jesus transfigure upon uh, the mount there. And so he was a partaker of that. He got to see kind of a glimpse of where we're all headed and what the unveiled glory of God looks like. And so he's like, essentially, in, in the same way he has the whole rest of the book, he's saying, my connection to Jesus gives me the ability to be able to speak to you like this. It's, it's really about Christ and his authority. I'm just, he's giving He's, he's asked me to share some of his authority to get his mission done. So that's what it looks like. Uh, first element is that a, a elder or a pastor has to have a desire to serve. They, they have to want to do it. <laughs> Seems self-explanatory, but you'd be surprised how many people are in that position and don't really want to do it. And if they could figure out another way to make money, they would do it. That breaks my heart, but... Um, I'm just going to say this again to make sure you hear it, because to some degree, some of you are just learning about church governance. Some of you are just learning right now what an elder and a pastor should look like. Some of you, within the sound of my voice, may be called to some office of church leadership. And so I want to make sure I'm also speaking to you and setting up uh, accurately what that looks like. This desire to serve has to come out of the right motive. It can't just be a desire to be in charge. This desire to serve has to be, it, it, it's a desire to lay down your life to serve the church. You should have a burning in your bones to give everything, to pour yourself out the way Jesus did upon the cross to serve his church. That is the desire that starts the possibility of you being called to be a leader among God's people. Because you can't lead without serving in God's economy. It doesn't work. It's, it's inside out and upside down. If you're going to be a leader, the, the first will be last, the last will be first. Jesus taught that. And uh, the, the leader is going to serve the most. The leader, it's going to cost them the most. And so uh, that whittles the field down, right? <laughs> to some degree, you desire to totally lay your life down the way Jesus did to serve his church. If that's not really there, then you should keep praying about whether or not you're called. The second thing is that he is called. So the second element in every elder pastor is he get, he's got to be called by God. What, where do I see that? Verse 2 First of all, says he needs to be willing, uh, not under compulsion, but voluntarily. But then he says, according to the will of God. And so not only does he need to have a desire, but also there has to be a calling from God. Uh, Romans 1.1, Paul says he was called by God to be an apostle. Paul didn't wake up one day and say, you know what word is cool? Apostle. I'm going to stick that in front of my name. But I've met church leaders that I think that's what happened. <laughs> they, they woke up one day and thought pastor or bishop or apostle or prophet or they're like, that, that is such a cool word. And it sounds so good with my name. So let's just put it on there and see what happens. That's not the way it works, friends. Uh, desire is, is step one, but there has to be a call from God. God has to sanction for you to be a leader among his people. He's got to gift you for it. He's got to call you for it. Uh, and you don't call yourself. And so 
how do you know, right? I've, I've tried to help uh, young men coming through thinking about that process and dealing with it. One, one thing I would say to you, one helpful guide, is if, if you're the only person that you know that has any inkling whatsoever you're called, you might not be called. So, so that's like step one. That should help you. Because here's one of two things. Either if nobody else knows that you're called, either A, you've not woven yourself deep enough into the life of a church body to really even be talking about leading one yet for them to know you well enough to know if you're called. Or secondly, if nobody else around you, not somebody, not a leader that you're submitted to, which we'll get to a, the point in a moment where if you don't have that, then, then you're definitely, you shouldn't even be in the conversation yet about whether or not you're called to lead. But if, if nobody else around you either knows you well enough to know that you're called or is affirming what you're saying, you should see that as God lovingly helping you to understand where you're at. Maybe you are called and you're just not ready yet. There's a lot of different ways that could look. But you don't call yourself. God calls you. And he, he's almost always going to have somebody that loves you and has a window into your life to be able to help affirm that. Now, has anybody ever been called by God and nobody believed it? Maybe, yeah, I'm sure that possibly happened, but that is definitely not normative. We don't see that throughout the way this, throughout the scriptures. Timothy had a call in his life, Paul understood it, right? Uh, Mark had a call in his life, Peter understood it. Those guys invested in them, they were able to recognize and see, uh, because first of all, those guys submitted themselves to godly leadership that could peer into their life and help them discern that. So that's what that looks like. If all of your bells and whistles are going off, oh my gosh, this guy's trying to control everybody. Listen, man, I don't want, I can't barely control myself. I don't want to control you. I'm just telling you what the Bible says about it. Um, you can choose to be mad, glad, sad, happy, whatever you want about it, but this is the reality, and this is true. And so one of the ways I love and serve this church is just by telling them the flat truth. And we don't keep tomatoes out there, so you're not tempted to throw one. So, hallelujah. You all right? We're just talking about the Bible. Everyone cool? We're just reading some scriptures, man. I'm just telling you what they say. All right, so the third element he brings up here is that, is that you got to be qualified. So you have to have a desire, first of all, be called by God, and be qualified. The biblical qualifications for an elder are listed in 1 Timothy 3, 1 through 7, Titus chapter 1, 5 through 9, and here in 1 Peter 5, some people would leave 1 Peter 5 off the list. I think it should be included when you're talking about what has God revealed about what qualifies somebody to be an elder or a pastor, a leader in God's church. Let me read you this. this is, uh, I'm going to give you the passage from uh, Timothy chapter 3, 1 through 7. Here's the qualifications of an elder. It is a trustworthy statement. If any man aspires to the office of overseer, it is a fine work he desires to do. An overseer, then, must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, temperate, prudent, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not addicted to wine or pugnacious, but gentle, peaceable, free from the love of money. He must be one who manages his own household well, keeping his children under control with all dignity. But if a man does not know how to manage his own household, how will he take care of the church of God? I'm going to pause for amen right there. Woo-wee! That's a good one. Paul wasn't playing games. He can't be a new convert so that he will not become conceited and fall into the condemnation incurred by the devil. And he must have a good reputation with those outside the church so that he will not fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. Uh, Titus gives us a very similar list, and then we see uh, what Peter says about it here. So those are the qualifications. Desire, calling, qualified. Those are the three elements we should see in an elder or pastor. Uh, they must be present. However, um, all of what they do, that pastor or elder, must be motivated and undergirded by one thing. So there's three elements, unanimous, unanimous across the board we see, that an elder or a pastor should, should possess, but they must be motivated and undergirded by one thing. Peter undoubtedly had the words of the Lord Jesus from John 21 on his mind as he called elders to shepherd the flock of God. So he, he's saying elders is a fellow elder, a partaker of the glory uh, that is to be revealed. He says, uh, what, 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 is the, what is the hinge point? He says, shepherd the flock of God among you. Why would he use that language? Well, undoubtedly, this is an extension of 
the way the Lord Jesus talked to him in John 21, 15 through 17. Let me read that to you. So when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my lambs. He said to him again a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, shepherd my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, tend my sheep. What do we see there? We see the motivation, the real motivation as it undergird all the three elements we just talked about and every single thing a pastor or an elder does in their, in their seeking to serve the church of God as an under-shepherd, under the chief shepherd. The motivation has to, first of all, be love for Jesus. If they don't love Jesus, and that's not what all of what they're doing in serving the church is flowing out of, it, it absolutely will fail. It will break apart, and it will be disastrous. They have to love Jesus, because if they love him, then he will help them then to love the people. And so all of his teaching and all of his counseling and guiding and leading and helping and, and everything the, the pastor elder does, if it's love with Jesus that is the outflow of all that he's doing, it will be sustained. He won't flame out. He won't give up and, and run off into sin because th that first main thing will be the thing that is motivating what he's doing, sustaining what he's doing. And you won't have the tragedy that so often besets uh, churches and, and pastors. It comes down to he's got to love Jesus, first and foremost. And if that isn't true, it's, it's a train wreck that's going to happen at some point. And that's why in Revelation, Jesus comes to some churches and says, i got a problem with you. You've lost your first love. This is an issue <laughs> because it's, it's, it's not just that. That's going to lead to disaster and cataclysm for everybody. And so uh, love has to be the motivation. Love for Christ and love for his people. If that's not the motivation, if that's not a pastor's motivation, and I'm not saying some days he doesn't fight discouragement and maybe has to dig to find that motivation. I, I got grace for that. Not that I've ever personally experienced it, but I've got, you know, I can imagine maybe that that could happen. But I'm saying like real deal down at the deep core. What, what is it? What is, what is the river he's drawn from? What's the well he's going to? If it's not love for God and love for people, he should, he should stop. In my view, any guy that answered that, that poll that I saw that says, I just don't know how to do anything else, that's why I'm pastoring people, I don't have any other way to make a paycheck, if he had one shred of integrity, he would quit. Because those people aren't being pastored. Because you can't. You can't do it if there's not a desire there that's born out of a love for Christ and a real love for people. I'm not trying to be hard on him, but Listen, man, there's all kinds of jobs. There's all kinds of ways to go make money. You've got to be called to do this one. And you've got to be in it all the way. Uh, that gets us to verse 4. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Question. He, he, kind of, he's, he gives these commands, and, and then verse 4 is like, and remember, guys, when the chief shepherd appears, you're going to receive the unfading crown of glory. It's like he's laying all this stuff on elders, like here's what you need to do, here's what it's going to cost, but he's, then he's reminding them there's, on the days where <laughs> it's hard to see the fruit, on the days where it doesn't seem like the sheep appreciate a whole lot what you're doing, here's one thing you've got to keep your eye on, man. The chief shepherd's going to appear at one point. And, and that glory that I saw a little bit of on the mount when Jesus transfigured, that's going to be a crown of glory that's going to rest upon your head. And so he sees, when no one else sees what, you, what it costs you to love and leave God's people, Jesus sees. And so he's encouraging these men um, because, you know, it, in no context is it an easy thing to obey the call of God to love and lead his people as a pastor or an elder. But these guys were doing it in the midst of of real deal persecution, right? So their, their burden was extra heavy, and so he's encouraging them. Um, so, so why did he do that? 
the simple, I just said more than I intended to, the simple answer is because this is a really hard job. And so he's, he's saying to them, this is what it looks like. This is the call of God upon you. But remember, there's reason to be encouraged. Um, and we can, we can also see this principle that this, this thing can be difficult. And in, uh, there's an admonishment given to the church uh, through the writer of the book of Hebrews. He says in Hebrews 13, verse 17, I know for some of you, you've, you can't, that verse I mentioned earlier, you can't have that as your life verse because you've already picked this one as your life verse. I know that that's true. This is Hebrews 13, 17. It says, obey your leaders and submit to them. I know there's a few tattoos in here of Hebrews 13, 17, uh, along with fridge magnets. But uh, it says, obey your leaders and submit to them, for they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with grief, for this would be unprofitable for you. So the writer of Hebrews, in the same way that Peter is here, I think, is acknowledging the fact that uh, it's a tall order. Um, You absolutely are not going to have any chance whatsoever of fulfilling the call of God to be a a leader that loves and serves his church uh, without his help. Um, And it's going to be difficult. And so Peter's addressing it from the elder's side, from the leader's side. The writer of Hebrews addresses it from the church's side. Essentially, he's trying to say, listen, these people people have signed up out of a love for Christ and a love for you. They have signed on the dotted line to care for your soul, (laughs) to, to answer to Jesus about you. Like, do you know you and how scary that is? <laughs> I mean, not this church. You're all precious lambs, right? I mean, it's amazing. But other places, I can see that being really difficult for people. Um, but that, that's what he's saying here. Don't, don't make it harder than it already is, man, because it's, it's difficult. And it would be unprofitable for you. That's, it, it's going gonna, it's gonna to be problematic on both ends. Uh, let's think together about this. this. The shepherd analogy extends throughout the scriptures. Does it not? Think about Psalm 23 describing the Lord. It says, the Lord is our shepherd, right? I shall not want. He leads me by still waters and into green pastures. And so God has revealed himself in this way as chief shepherd. Jesus takes that title as well. Uh, And so in explaining what he's doing and how he's relating to us, that shepherd analogy starts with God. But then also think about this. Uh, Before Moses became the leader of the people of Israel and kind of charged into Egypt, um, to lead the Exodus, what, what did God do with him? Right? He murders an Egyptian, flees out to the wilderness. What's he doing in the wilderness for a bunch of years? He's a shepherd, man. Do you think God knew what Moses was going to do? Did God know the plan? And so what did he have Moses do for decades before he put him in a position to be leading the people of Israel? He had him ten sheep. Where Where did the prophet find David when he came to anoint him as king? What does dad say? Here's all my boys. He goes through each one. God says, that's not it. The prophet says, where's, you got any other sons? Well, yeah, I got got a runt. He's out there. What's he doing? He's tending sheep. When David meets Saul, he comes in. Everyone's like, this is crazy because all of our best warriors over here shaking in their boots over this giant and we got this guy coming in here, you know, not even big enough to put on armor, saying he, he can handle this. And what, what is the language David uses? Where does his confidence come from? Is he just a, a dumb kid with so much testosterone that he doesn't understand reality? No. What he says to Saul is, when I tended my father's sheep, a bear tried to come and take one of those sheep. I grabbed it and I killed it. A lion tried to come and take one of those sheep. I grabbed it. And I killed it. And here's the real key. He says, the Lord who kept me and saved me, spared me, empowered me to defeat the lion and the bear, he will also empower me to defeat this giant who now comes against the people of Israel, the sheep of God. Right? Moses is a shepherd. David is a shepherd. Pastors and elders today, over and over again, shepherd the sheep. This was Jesus' command. Jesus could have used any, Jesus is aware of every possible analogy in the universe, is he not? What analogy does he use to ask Peter to take care of those he loves? Feed my lambs, tend my lambs. He uses that shepherd analogy. When when you see a pattern that definitive throughout the scriptures, it should make you think about why. What's going on there? Verse 4 simultaneously reminds leaders 
that the sheep belong to Jesus, right? But, and, and so the sheep belong to Jesus, and it, but he's also telling them that they will be rewarded for faithfully taking care of them. Sometimes pastors have to cling to that promise because the task can easily overwhelm any man because the shepherd analogy, it, it goes really deep and far, and we could probably think of new ways all the time. And those of you that are good at, at thinking in kind of an analogous way, you may already be running with all the reasons why God has defined himself as the chief shepherd, and he calls those that he uh, has, has brought up to lead his people, he calls them shepherds. And, and good, I want you to think about it. That's great. Uh, but why can it be overwhelming to stand in and be that under-shepherd under the chief shepherd? What, what, what does that look like? Well, pastors are called to love the sheep, protect the sheep, feed the sheep, right? So those are all, that's a lot to do. Um, you're, you're not just loving and taking care of them, but you got to protect them because there's outside threats and other stuff. There's wolves that want to come in and take them. you got to feed them. And, and sometimes, you know, they're, they're like a kid you're trying to feed peas, right? They're doing that deal. Uh, sometimes when you try to embrace the sheep, like they growl at you like a wolf. I never knew until I got in ministry the sheep could growl, man. But they can bear teeth, and they got, they got some sharp ones, man. It's, it's wild. Uh, sometimes as a leader, you have to throw yourself down into a hole that the sheep has gotten themselves into, and then they fight and bite the whole time you're trying to save their life and drag them out of the hole. I mean, that's real, and that happens. Sometimes you, you walk around the corner, you know, and there's, there's Sally the sheep again, and, and you've told her, she's eating these flowers, you've told her those are poisonous and those are going to kill you and hurt you, but you walk around the corner, there she is again, hiding, chomping on the flowers that are going to just, it's totally going to destroy her life. You're, and, and what are you supposed to do? <laughs> you got to try to love her, pick her up again, take her over to good grass and, and still waters. Um, sheep will run and hide from you, make you run and search for them. It's, there's a reason why after Peter calls elders to shepherd the flock of God, he says, and when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. He's like, guys, I know what I'm asking, but just remember, in all the difficulty, Jesus sees. Uh, this is not a pastoral pity party. This is just the verses that are here. And so I know there's all kinds of ways that people think about leadership and authority and, and all of that. And, and we are very Western and very individualistic. We're going to deal that, with that in just a minute. So we're already starting at a deficit with most people um, presenting what the Bible says about these things. Most people are going to kick against that. Most people are going to be a sheep that's going to run over on the other side of the mountain and be their own shepherd. <laughs> um, well, I'm getting ahead of myself. Let's just keep going. It can be exhausting and thankless and discouraging sometimes, but it can also be beautiful and life-giving and joy-filled. And Peter gives us the key to what makes the difference in the next verse. It, this, it really can go either way for the church and for those that are called to love and lead them by serving them. Um, it, it, can, it can be really difficult or it can be really beautiful. Sometimes it's a mixture of both, let's be honest. But Peter gives us a key here. Uh, that, that will help it um, more often than not be something beautiful, even if it's difficult. Because difficult and beautiful aren't uh, mutually exclusive. Oftentimes they go together. And sometimes we see the beauty of God's faithfulness only in the midst of difficulty. Sometimes we can only see how faithful and good he really is. Sometimes we can only learn or understand what we need to learn or understand by passing through a fiery trial and having him help us through it. Sometimes that is the only way that we can learn what we need to learn. Now, some of you don't like that, and, and, I, and I get it, but it's, it is just the truth. And, I, and if you don't like it, I would just humbly ask you to submit that to the Lord and have him help you figure out why you don't like it, because it is true. Uh, and I think if you even just think about basic life experience, it would bear out that fact. Some, some things can only be learned by walking with Jesus through difficulty. Uh, and I'm thankful because that doesn't scare me a whole lot because Jesus said every single time if I trust him, he'll walk with me through the difficulty. So I'm not scared about it. I can rejoice in his faithfulness. I'm trusting in his good character. But how does verse 5 help us to have what, what can be a very difficult 
dynamic between sheep and shepherds, what, what do we have here that helps us? It says, you younger men, likewise, be subject to your elders. So let's stop there for a second. <clears throat> Step one in how, in how there's more beauty than there is uh, bitterness when it comes to this relationship that God has laid out um, between the church and leaders is, first of all, sheep need to be willing to admit that they are sheep. Some of you, probably your sensibility is offended even at the fact that you are being referred to in the Bible as a sheep. Well, what do you mean? Right? <laughs> I can feed myself just fine. I can find my own green pasture. Thank you very much. Okay, like, I get it. I get it. We're Americans. We are descended from people that jumped on rickety ships and came across the Atlantic and conquered this continent, right? However, I'm not going to get into all the politics of that. We did bad stuff. But at the end of the day, we come from some stock, man. Like, we come from some rugged folks that just came and did stuff. And so part of our problem that's woven into our DNA to some degree, we are very individualistic in the way we think. Um, and, and part of what this speaks to, what does he say? Likewise, be subject to your elders. What's the assumption in that statement? Are you tracking with me? If he says, likewise, you younger men, be subject to your elders, what's the assumption? That you have elders? Am I stretching? Did I read anything into the text? No. And that's not the only place. I can take you to a bunch of other places where the assumption of the New Testament writers, the guys that rolled around with Jesus is, if you belong to Jesus, you'll be connected to a church body and thus have leaders that you can submit to. So first assumption is that you've, you're willing to admit that you're a sheep that needs a shepherd. Let me just say this. You never graduate out of that. Even those that are called to be under shepherds in God's church still need to be shepherded. And part of how God does that is they, they, they are called to help shepherd, lead, hold each other accountable. But if any man ever gets to the point where he decides, well, Jesus is my shepherd, and so I'm, I'm, I've kind of reached the top of the leadership chart, that guy's a total fool and, and absolutely will shipwreck his life. That's never true. So everybody, including the people that Peter is calling to be faithful shepherds, everyone needs to admit we are a sheep. <laughs> we need to be led. We need to be showed where the good grass is. Sometimes we need to be fed. Sometimes someone needs to chase us down, grab us by the nape of the neck, and drag us back over with the rest of the flock because we're doing dumb stuff. Sometimes someone needs to kick us in the behind because we're eating the flowers that are poisonous and are going to destroy our life again. Right? Well, it's not me. I don't know why you're looking at me. I'm not looking at any of you. I'm looking slightly above all of your heads. It's a pastoral trick. Okay? So if you're just certain I've been locking eyes with you, then you and Jesus deal with it. Okay? That's not my problem. Because <laughs> I ain't looking at you. There's four to five points on the back wall that I just swivel on. So just so you know. Because I'm not preaching at any of you. I'm preaching at me. And, I'm, I'm, and I'm, I'm trying to just honestly, faithfully lay out what these scriptures are saying for all of us, because this is helpful for us. If we will drink this humble syrup that Jesus is offering us today, it will help us. Um, and it will cultivate a beauty that will speak uh, volumes to those that are observing how the people of God live. Because how many people do you know that willingly admit they need to be subject to authority? That willingly admit they are a sheep that needs guidance? that will willingly admit they don't always know what's best for them and they need a leader. How many people do you hear use that type of language openly and humbly? We need a cricket soundtrack. That would be helpful. It doesn't happen a whole lot, but we need to know that about ourselves. What does it require? An incredible amount of humility, which Peter gives us. Um, you know, if you're hearing everything you're, I'm saying and you're like, well, well, what's wrong with Jesus being my shepherd? He's the chief shepherd. Jesus is my shepherd. Well, yeah, he is ultimately. But if, if you look at the entire, entire storyline of the Bible, you will not find one place where God chose to lead his people any other way than calling, equipping, qualifying an under-shepherd that he called to lead them. That's always the way he's done it. Did it with Moses. Did it with David. 
It's the clear pattern of the New Testament. Everywhere you look, that's what you're going to see. So unless you're basing the way God is relating to you on some outside source besides the Bible, which I just couldn't imagine anybody ever doing that, but (laughs) uh, that's the only way you could get to that conclusion. Because this is the way Jesus does it. He, He calls and cultivates into a man a heart that would cause him to have this this desire that many, many of you probably would consider crazy, and and I think it's crazy half the time, that he would cultivate in the heart of somebody such a deep love for Christ and for his people that they want to spend the rest of their life just giving everything to love and serve God's people. That's what, and that's the whole point. The problem is you got a bunch of people running around that are calling themselves pastor that, that God didn't do that in, and that's where all of this gets really ugly and messed up and it's weird and there's manipulation and, and all kinds of dark things that happen that, that gives the church a bad name and gives this whole idea of the fact that we all are sheep and that Jesus has under shepherds and that we all need to submit to that. That's how that goes. That's why that happens. But, but the way Jesus does it is he calls somebody, puts a, a love in them and a willingness to see how Jesus laid his life down for the church, and he makes a man really want to do that. Even though it's really hard, it, his desire is to do that. And then God empowers him to do it. That's the way he's done this. And so Jesus shepherds through calling, equipping, and empowering shepherds under him. If you reject them, you are rejecting him. Flat out. He's only doing it one way. He's made that clear. And if you're not willing to submit to that because you're too holy or because everyone is too bad and you just can't possibly believe that God could change a man's heart and make him into something uh, that could follow after the mold of Christ to be a leader among God's people, then the problem is with your faith in what God can do and your, maybe your understanding of what the Bible says. Because I understand there is a... There is a whole refrain out there of people asking the question, do I need to be a part of a church? This answers that to some degree. You younger men, likewise, be subject to your elders. The assumption is that you have some. The assumption is that you're a part of a church where there's somebody that's loving you, caring for you, and correcting you when it's needed. Because if you, if you assume there's never going to be a point where you're going to need someone to help steer you, you have essentially taken the same bait that Satan did. <laughs> you, have, you believe you are there. You've arrived. You're God. You're sinless and perfect and, and don't need anybody. And, and you're mistaken, my friend. Uh, my, my response, this, is, this would be one of the ways I would respond to the, the, this big idea, do I need to be a part of a church? And, and when I say it that way, I'm even using, I, I say it that way because I realize that even when we say things like, do I, most, when most people ask that question, they would, say, I don't need to, they would say, I don't need to go to church to be a Christian. Well, that right there betrays a misunderstanding of what God's doing when it comes to his church. Church is not a place you go. It's not a service time you attend. The church is a people. The word church is ecclesia, and that means the called out ones. There's not one place in your Bible where the church is a building, a service time, or any of the stuff we end up calling it. And so that's why with our children, all the time, and I don't even know, I don't know who else talks to them or if we just had this weird human tendency to think in terms of, of locations or something, but even they will say, um, go to church or, or they'll say something like that. And, and so we're, we're constantly saying to them, we're going to gather with the church. You can't, you can't go to a people, but you can gather with a people. And it's not just semantics and it's not us just being weird and religious. It really matters how you think about the church. If the church is a place or a program or, or a, a service that I can go and be entertained at, it's not a people that God has taken me. And like Peter said earlier in this book, you were once not a people, but now you're a people. Are you thankful for that? That by the blood of Christ, he took a bunch of people that had no reason to love each other, no reason to band together on a similar mission, no reason to come together for the glory of God or for the serving of, of, of his people, And by the blood of Christ, he has bound us together. He's put us into a family. And that is the picture of the church. And so 
The right question is not even, do I need to go to church? You can't go to church. You can be a part of a church. So then the question is, do I need to be a part of a church to be a Christian? Do I need to be a part of a church to, to serve God? And, and I struggle. Some days when I'm feeling sassy, I just want to say, <laughs> I just want to say, no, man, you can't be a Christian. How are you going to do that? How are you not going to be a part of the way God said he's doing this? Like, what, what do you think? So, but then on other days, I try to think of, of cute pictures to say it more softly. So I, t- t- I guess today was a less sassy day. So my question to you would be, if you say, do I, need to, do I need to be a part of a church to be a Christian? I would say, maybe, maybe technically. And I realize the thief upon the cross didn't get down and join church membership, okay? Totally. That, but that is not a normative pattern. What is, the normative, what is a normative pattern? A normative pattern is if you meet Christ and are baptized, should you seek to join your life together with another group of people that are on mission for Jesus? Should you be a part of the church? I guess maybe there's some technicalities where you could, you could be serving Jesus but not be a part of a church. But technically, you could also ride your bike with no wheels. You could sit on the thing, right? Forks on the ground. I guess it'd be the sprocket on the back. And you could just hop it down the road. But what's going to happen? You're going to fall a lot. (laughs) You're going to look like a fool. And there's a great chance you're not going to get where you're trying to get. So you can do the individualistic thing. You can try to be the super Christian that is on a total different plan than, than what the New Testament has set out as normative for those that follow Christ. You can try that, but you're probably going to end up frustrated. You're going to fall a lot. You're going to look like a fool, and you may not get where you're trying to go. Okay. What's the last thing here? So he specifically addresses younger men. <laughs> you know, we're called elsewhere that everyone should be submitted to, to church leadership and those that God calls to, to lay down their life to serve and love his people. He specifically calls out younger men probably just because um, younger men tend to have a lot of testosterone and ideas and be kind of aggressive. And so he calls them out specifically, essentially tells them just chill out. And uh, listen to somebody that, that's been around the block a few more times than you have and that has proven that they love you. And, that, and that's really the thing, man. Uh, I, I would encourage you, don't submit to anybody that you don't believe loves you. I don't know how you'd trust them. Um, and this whole thing works out of love. So Then he says, and all of you. Is anybody not in all of you? Anybody make it out of that somehow? Are you all? Okay, no, that's all... <laughs> And all of you, right, clothe yourselves with humility toward one another, for God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Does it tell you something that this is how Peter closes the thought here? Do you think that perhaps he anticipated some of the, the angst and difficulty there is between shepherds and sheep? Do you think he understood that sometimes people don't want to admit they're sheep? Do you think he understood that sometimes shepherds or wannabe shepherds don't love the people and, and they're just doing it because they're on an authority trip or, or because they, can't come, they don't know how to make money any other way. He did. And, and so he ends this thing like this. All of you, everybody, whether you're a leader and a shepherd or you're a sheep, clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. For God is opposed to the proud but gives grace to the humble. If, if, if that... Verse, God is opposed to the proud but gives grace to the humble. If that doesn't stop you in your tracks every time you hear it and make you assess what's going on, like I fear for you, man. Because every single one of us falls prey to the temptation of pride. It comes in a hundred different flavors and colors. It's as sneaky as can be. And it's something that is constantly going to have to be submitted to the Holy Spirit, and for us to have his help to identify and destroy. We are all tempted to be prideful. What is the remedy? To clothe ourselves with humility. That language, it's the, if, if, you look, if you look at the way it's said here, it very much is the same language used to describe when Jesus got up from the table and he took off his robe and he took a servant's towel and he wrapped himself in it 
And he got down on his knees. This is the king of glory. This is God enveloped in flesh. But this is the God that created these men, bows to his knee, and washes the filth from their feet. The king of glory did that. And so, dear friend, you and I and nobody has any excuse ever to not clothe ourselves with that same humility. The greatest made himself the lowest. And so whatever perception you have in your mind of how great you are, you're not greater than him. And so go ahead and get low. Go ahead and bow down and wash those feet. Now, to the glory of God, we have wonderful shoes today. And so most of you won't have an opportunity to actually wash someone's feet. And I'm thankful to Jesus that he chose 2017 America for me to live in. I would wash your feet if that's what was required. I'm just saying I'm glad that it's not. (laughs) But there are going to be countless other ways for me to love and serve you, for me to deny myself and to show you that you, I count you as more important than me. And the beauty of that is some of you are terrified to do that because you've had too many examples of your life of somebody taking advantage of that that you've bowed low, and what they should have done is also done that, and it should be a race to the bottom to see who can serve and honor one another better, but the other person doesn't do that. They just take, and they just exploit. Friend, you can't, you can't ever for sure be protected from that, but you are responsible for one thing, and that's faithfulness to what Jesus has asked you to do. And so regardless of the reaction of anybody else, you clothe yourself with humility. You take your towel, and you wrap it around your waist, and you bow your knee, and you serve, and you love, and you be humble, because God is opposed to the proud. Friend, can you afford God's opposition? I'm barely making it through the average day with his help. Now, how good am I going to do if he sets his face against me because I have bought into this lie that I somehow am the one? that doesn't need to be humble, that doesn't need to serve, that doesn't need to lead with love in all that I do and say. I can't afford God's opposition, dear friend. And whether or not you, I don't, if you're so deluded that you think you're bad enough that you can, let me just be the one to love you enough to say, fool, sit down. This is God we're talking about. I need, I need, I need him blowing wind in my sails at my back. I need him to be my rear guard. I need his help. I need him to pick me up and carry me half the time. I can't have him being against me because I've decided I am him or that I don't need to submit to him or I don't need to look at the beauty of the way he's put this thing together for us and, and in, a, in a joy-filled way embrace that. Listen, man, I realize this is messy. I realize that this... It's difficult to sort out. I realize that practically you put yourself at all kinds of vulnerability when you obey these verses. But I'm not asking you to trust every human to react correctly when you obey Jesus. I'm asking you to trust him. Because even if somebody else doesn't act right, the same promise, the same promise that Peter gave to these shepherds when he asked them to lay their life down for the sheep that same promise elsewhere is given to you. you. You may be taken advantage of. Somebody may not treat you well when you obey Jesus and you're humble. It may be very difficult some days to obey these things. But remember, dear friend, one day, one day, when the chief shepherd appears, a crown of glory is going to sit upon your head, man. It's going to be worth it. Every bit of it is going to be worth it. Amen. May we be a people who rejoice in the gift of God's church. May we each seek to know our assignment from Jesus and faithfully walk it out. And may we all clothe ourselves with humility for the glory of our King and for our good. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we come before you in the name of Jesus. I thank you for these verses. I thank you, Lord, for the call to humility. We need it. Lord, we confess our sin right now as a people, as your people. We are prone to pride 
and we are prone to see things uh, that don't really line up with reality. We're prone to see situations that don't reflect what is really going on, and we are prone to see ourselves much higher than we ought. Lord, we are prone to see the worst in others and the best in us. And we just ask, God, that by the power of your Spirit, you would crush those tendencies in us. May we see the best in others. May we hope the best in others. And, and when, when their deficits or their difficulties, when they show up in a real way, Lord, may we react with grace. Help us to want to rush to help with that as opposed to jump on them and make it worse. We thank you, Lord, for your church. We thank you for the gift you've given us in binding us together by the blood of Christ, making us a family. I thank you, Lord Jesus, that you lived a life that showed those that you would call to be shepherds underneath you what it looks like to be a leader. I thank you, Lord, that leadership isn't barking orders and it's not a contest to see how many people you can get to listen to you. Real leadership is to lay down your life totally and completely out of love for the people that you're called to serve. Lord, may that belief, may that true fact, I ask God that every single pastor, every single shepherd, every single elder, and every single faithful church, that Lord, you'd remind them of that. Remind all of us that we have to clothe ourselves in humility, that you're the chief shepherd, that every one of us belongs to you. Lord, I pray for your people that none of them would decide that they're not a sheep. They're something else. They're going to be their own shepherd. May we all realize that we are sheep, that we need you. We need to be guided. We need to be loved and tended, cared for. We need to be fed sometimes. We need to be corrected often. Thank you, Lord, that you've committed to doing that, that you're faithful. Thank you that many times the way you bring those things is by uh, having one of your people bring it. Lord, may we be humble enough to receive instruction, correction, care from those that you've called to do it. Please help us in that, Lord. Lord God, I ask that uh, as we walk clothed in this kind of humility, that it would breed unity, that it would, it would cultivate an ever-growing sense and reality of, of, of love between God's people and and. Lord, you said in the book of John that the world would know us by our love one for the other. I ask you to remove the barriers that keep us from loving each other and trusting each other. Satan has sown so many wedges, so many seeds of bitterness and doubt. Lord, I ask that you would help us by trusting your word and by trusting you, by submitting uh, our difficulties and our doubts to you in these things. I ask God that by the power of your spirit, you would remove all of those barriers so that we can be even more powerful as a light in this world, as salt in a saltless place. Lord, you told us where there is strife, there's every evil work. And so, God, I ask for this church that humility would reign, that every single one of us would seek to outdo one another in showing honor. May we answer the call of your scriptures to do everything we do out of love for you and love for one another. God, I ask that you are glorified in a magnificent way through these things. We worship you and we love you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Love City Church, located in Cincinnati, Ohio. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. To give or find out more about Love City Church, visit www.mylovecitychurch.org.